Today's program is brought to you by Nutrislice, helping school nutrition programs who want to do a little more with their marketing communications. For more information, visit Nutrislice.com. This is Chef Emily Peterson, host of Sharp and Hot. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Greetings and welcome to Inside School Food on the Heritage Radio Network. I am your host, Laura Stanley. Uh, Today is September 28th, just two days before Child Nutrition Reauthorization 2015 was scheduled for a vote um, in both houses of Congress. I I don't know about all of you, but I never believed that it would happen on time. Um, Last time around in 2010, reauthorization was delayed by two months. Um, This time, while we wait, we, we keep finding more things to say about this bill, because this is not a static situation. Um, in this new school year, we've seen the quality of the food um, in our schools uh, continue to improve. And and I say that students, parents, and the press are noticing. I say on the whole, the press is getting more positive. Um, new leaders at the School Nutrition Association are introducing more nuanced, more construction, more constructive conversation, or that, that's my opinion anyway. Um, big processors like Schwann's report success and even increased sales in meeting 100% whole grain rich standards. A brand new study about the negative impact of short meal times has everybody talking. And the Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act's ambitious targets for further limits on sodium continue to be challenged by credible nutrition science, etc. There's a lot going on. So so this is really an ideal time for us to be talking to today's guest, um, Dr. Katie Wilson, who is the new USDA Deputy Undersecretary for Food Nutrition and Consumer Services, that's FNS, um, new since May of this year, following the retirement of Janie Thornton. Um, Katie is a deeply experienced leading national authority in school nutrition. She is a credentialed school nutrition specialist who holds a Bachelor of Science in Dietetics and a Master of Food Science and Nutrition from the University of Wisconsin. Uh, She earned her doctorate in food service and lodging management from Iowa State University. Katie has logged in 23 years as a school nutrition director in several Wisconsin districts. Uh, and she served as president of the SNA in 2008-9. Uh, most recently, Katie served five years as executive director of the National Food Service Management Institute at the University of Mississippi, now, of course, known by its new name, the Institute of Child Nutrition. And, and given all this, it is not surprising that Katie is the recipient of many peer-nominated SNA and USDA awards throughout her career. So, Katie, with that introduction... Good morning. We are so honored to have you with us today on the show. Good morning, Laura. I'm delighted to be here. Yeah. So, you know, listeners will have some idea what the Deputy Undersecretary for FNS does, but I think they may think of you mainly with regard to school nutrition, but you're you're actually administering 15 nutrition assistance programs. Could you fill us in just a little on what your office does Sure. Um, The Deputy Undersecretary, first of all, I work very closely with the Undersecretary, Kevin Kincannon, Mm -hmm. um, and the whole FNS staff, the whole Food and Nutrition Services staff, 
that are really career people that really keep things going in between, um, no matter who the administration is. They're the ones that have to keep things going. So Mm -hmm. I work with them. Um, We do a lot of listening. Like you said, we oversee all of the food and nutrition programs that the federal government um, subsidizes and, and funds. And so we do a lot of listening sessions. I go out in the field a lot of my job. Mm-hmm. Um, I am traveling and, and out in the field because then I bring back suggestions and challenges and concerns from the field and what people say are working or not working. Um, and then we spend a lot of time developing strategies to sort of assist people in how can we improve the efficiency and the accountability of these programs um, so that they're sustainable and that we continue to offer the services to the people that we serve in the country. Right. And you made an important point, Katie, that I should have made, and that is um, you are a political appointee, um, but your staff is is not. Um, so that's, that's an important distinction. Um, you, you've ta- so you've taken on this post at such a challenging time in school nutrition. You know, what, what motivated you to say yes? Well, uh, yeah, it, it definitely was a motivation. Of course, those that know me, I, I have a real passion uh, for school nutrition in particular, but overall, I really have a passion for giving people access to food with dignity. That's kind of my uh, statement that I like to make to people. Um, and that I think too many times we put people that a really negative spin on the fact that people need food assistance throughout their lives, and whether they're children, or adults, or seniors, or disabled, um, sometime in people's lives, many people need food assistance. And I really passionately feel that in this country that that should just be very easy and and very dignified for people to get that assistance. Mm -hmm. And, of course, the whole school nutrition piece is really what uh, was the final string and pulls me there because of my passion for that as well. Right, right. So to to ground our conversation today, I thought we might begin by looking at some of the content in the recent um, three-page USDA document. I think it's from early this month. Um, and it's called, it's uh, School Serving Kids Eating Healthier School Meals Thanks to Healthy Hunger-Free Kids Act. It's kind of a mouthful. <laughs> um, yeah, USDA calls this paper a fact sheet. So I'd like to take a little time to look at some of the facts reported here. Um, it leads off with a pretty solid summary of where Healthy Hunger-Free Kids has brought us. Um, it calls it the first meaningful improvement to the uh, nutrition of foods and beverages served in schools and cafeterias and sold in vending machines in 30 years. Um, Do you want to say a little bit more about that? Sure. I think, you know, being in school nutrition my whole career, I I think we have done a lot of work throughout the years, but really this is the most uh, concentrated document and the concentrated legislative change that we've done in about 30 years. And I really think that this legislative change they really took into account, number one, the science of nutrition. I mean, they really looked at it. The Institute of Medicine is the one that was uh, instructed to go ahead and and do this work and come up with these um, regulations. So it was based on the science of nutrition. And then it was really based on the need to engage in solutions for childhood obesity. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it summarizes that very nicely, that we're in trouble. And all different factions and all different organizations, including the military, is saying, look, we are really in trouble. And if we don't engage in this uh, activity and engage in this whole process, then the cost is going to really be 
uh, something that most of us don't want to deal with. Right. It, it also points out that we're starting to see a slow um, reversal of child obesity. Um, and I think it's reasonable to assume that um, what's going on in our schools has something to do with that. Um, it, it also makes the point, it says, and I'm quoting here, um, now is not the time to backpedal on a healthier future for our kids. I mean, wouldn't you say that there's consensus around that statement throughout the child nutrition community? I think it's throughout everybody. I mean, mm-hmm. I think the Congress and the Senate and the child nutrition community, you know, the medical community, I mean, I think everybody truly believes that children deserve the best in their schools. Right, right. Um, so so most yeah. of this paper, and I'm going to post this on the website today so you can read it, um, it's, it's in the form of these bulleted uh, facts, um, many of which are not in dispute. Um, for instance, it talks about the uh, very influential surveys conducted by the Pew Charitable Trust that have established that school meals reform is solidly supported by a majority of parents and voters. Um, it says that 95 cent... Uh, uh, sorry, percentage, 95 percentage of districts have successfully implemented the meal pattern. Um, community eligibility has been hugely successful in bringing feel me- feel free meals to more than 6.8 million students in need. And then, and then there's another one that I think would surprise some people. Uh, very, very few schools have opted to drop out of the me- reimbursable meal programs. Katie, what, what is the dropout rate? Um, it's less than one percent. Yeah. So. Yeah, it, it's very, very low. And then we've also seen a few of those schools come back. I'm aware of that. So sometimes yeah. when schools choose to drop out, they forget to add in the value of the USDA foods that they get. Yeah. Um, that's what my personal experience has been: is that mm-hmm. districts that have decided to come back after a year or two years, they say, "Oh, oh my goodness, we didn't realize, and we didn't put that into the mathematical equation." So. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but it's less than one percent. It's a very, very small percentage. Yeah, and I feel like the public and the media have this idea that many more have dropped out. So I just wanted to get that said. <laughs> right, and I think sometimes people get excited and they make a lot of uh, press when they decide to take one of their schools out of the district. And that's another thing. Sometimes it's just one school mm-hmm. out of their district. It's not the whole district. Right. But sometimes it's misreported as well. Yeah, yeah. So. Uh, I have some questions about some of the other items that are presented in this document as fact. Um, for instance, we're, we're told that students are eating more fruits and vegetables now as a result of mandatory servings policy. I mean, how do we really know this? Well, I think in all of those research studies, Laura, I think no matter what, you know, where the research study is coming from, and, you know, everybody seems to have their research that they're using. Mm-hmm. and. I think there's a couple things we have to look at. Number one, I truly believe that the Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act has bumped up the whole idea of school meals. I mean, it has really put it into the national media. It has made everybody more aware of what needs to go on. So, for instance, the one about the um, kids eating more fruits and vegetables. Mm-hmm. When you look at that study, um, one of the things that came out of that study was that for every time they added a new choice, per, um, consumption went up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there's really the important fact out of that study for me is that it's teaching us that maybe it's choice that's getting kids to bump that up. So it's looking, maybe it's yeah. choice that's getting kids to decide. You know, we look with our eyes, 
um, in, a, in a program that I started, once we put three colors of fresh fruits and vegetables on a tray, consumption went up. Right. So that we did feature that study. It's from the Red Center. Um, I, and it was uh, on Inside School Food in April. So I encourage people to look back at that. Um, there's a much more recent study from the U- University of Vermont that describes something very different, resistance from kids when they're told they have to eat something. So I guess what I'm wondering is, you know, as we as we know, we've got these dueling studies. And, you know, do we have enough research to know enough about what really works, whether mandatory is a good idea or just strong encouragement? Well, I think, you know, whether we have enough studies or not, I, again, I think I look at the study. The Vermont study was in two schools in one district. Mm-hmm. Maybe there are other issues going on there. I, I don't know. You know, I, don't, I wasn't there for the study. But I think overall, and I think even in when you look at um, the medical field, the pedi- pediatricians that have spoken out, when you look at smarter lunchrooms, I think what we're finding is that the more we expose children to these things, the more apt they are to accept them. Mm-hmm. And I always use a reference of eighth grade algebra or ninth grade algebra. Most kids don't want to take algebra in eighth or ninth grade, but we don't say, oh, well, we'll go back to simple math because you don't want to do this. We Make them take algebra because they need to know what it is. They need to be exposed to it. Um, And I really believe that in food service as well. And I really, truly believe that children have to be exposed to things over and over again. And there is research that shows that that's Mm -hmm. been around for a long time. That, But if we don't put that on the tray, if we don't say to them, look, you need to choose a fruit or a vegetable, that in itself is educating kids that that's part of a whole meal. That's another thing that concerns me a little bit about pulling that requirement away. Right, right. One thing School Meals is known for is that it is a one whole comprehensive meal. It's not just individual components. Yeah. Well, certainly that, that's, that's a really interesting point of view, Katie. This is a hotly debated topic, as you know. And one thing I could say for sure is that everyone I talk to on the show is interested in seeing kids eat a lot of fruit and vegetables. I guess the question right. remains, is this the right approach or not? Um, here's, here's another um, bullet point in this um, document. It says school lunch revenue is up, um, which it is. Um, but, you know, SNA reports of declining revenues in many districts points to a diversity of experience with regard to revenue and finances that the fact sheet doesn't address. I wonder if you could comment on that. Well, I think there, too. I, I think, you know, we have an entire country here, which is huge, and we have tens of thousands of school districts. So um, we are hearing from state agencies that people are moving in the right direction, that revenue is stabilizing and going up. Um, I hear anecdotally from people that, yeah, revenue's doing we're doing okay. And where I hear that they're being the most successful is when they take the a la carte or those snacks, and that's been kind of an issue of contention as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. But they take those snacks and they bundle them to be a reimbursable school meal. And, and for many people, that's been kind of a new concept. Because if you bundle some of those things into a reimbursable school meal, then, number one, you can serve more items that you want to serve because the nutritional value is over the course of a week. And more students can go ahead and participate in that program. Um, you know, and I did that many years ago in my own school district only because I wanted kids even that are receiving free meals to go into the a la carte room. Mm-hmm. And when, so bundling that, you get the reimbursement back from the federal government. You get your value of USDA foods added to your, your annual account. 
Um, and so that's where we're seeing people become very successful in making their revenues come back. Yeah, and we've had examples like that on Inside School Food, and I want to make clear that when you say snacks, you're talking about healthy elements of a reimbursable meal, not potato chips, right? Right. right. <laughs> okay. Anything that fits in the reimbursable meal, but that sort of takes care of a problem where people say, well, we can't sell a cheeseburger in our a la carte room. Right. Well, yes, you can. If you bundle it and make it part of a reimbursable meal, then you absolutely can because it becomes part of that nutritional analysis for the week. Right, right. And then there's another point you make. Um, participation is up in many parts of the country, and we know that to be true as well, and that's great news. But, you know, what about the settings that we know about also where participation is not up or it's even in decline? I feel like the fact sheet doesn't take that on either. Well, and I think the fact sheet is to let people know the positive things that are going on in the mm-hmm. program. And I truly believe that we will move forward when we speak positively um, and let people know all the good things are, that are going on. This was significant change, and significant change is difficult, um, and it takes time. Um, so I truly believe that, you know, the positive messages are what maybe encourage people mm-hmm. uh, to move forward. Uh, we were at an activity with the Pew Institute where we talked about, you know, how do we get people to move forward, and they had an illustrator there during that discussion. And she illustrated a tunnel, and people were on the one side of the tunnel. Some people had gotten through the tunnel. Some mm-hmm. people got stuck in the tunnel. And the question was, how do we light the tunnel? How do we get people through that tunnel? And I think that's where participation is. And I think part of getting through that tunnel is also something called marketing. Mm-hmm. Many times in my personal experiences is that we're talking too negatively about this and all the negative things and the students that don't want to eat it, instead of saying, look, this isn't a burden that you have to take a fruit and vegetable. It's a bonus. Lucky you. Your school has to have nice fresh fruits and vegetables and a, a variety of different fruits and vegetables for you to choose from. Um, and so this is now your bonus mm-hmm. that we care enough to say this has to be there. Right. So I think participation rate is part of marketing and, and getting the positive messages out and letting kids know that this is, this is cool. This is the right thing to do and this is a fun way to get good nutrition is through the school nutrition right and their parents obviously get them on board and get them to think of um, school lunch as having um i don't know buzz and we that's another of our favorite topics here on the show as you know Uh, but concerns remain you know i recently had a conversation with a food service director that said he's still stuck in a place where the more well-to-do kids are bringing lunch boxes to the elementary school um, which means they can skip the line and settle down at the table together while the others wait online and ultimately eat apart from the lunchbox kids. And he was concerned about what he was, you know, basically a socioeconomic segregation in the cafeteria. And he, and he, as you said, you know, he's trying to amend that with better marketing to the paying families. Um, here, here's another one. Um, students like the taste of school meals. Uh, the study cited... Um, uh, or that in, in the study that you used to make that claim involved uh, 10 California districts, uh, and it says, quote, with a record of achievement promoting healthy school meals. And I'm wondering, um, what can we learn from a study that looks exclusively at districts that are already ahead? Well, and I think, and I looked back at that study as well from Berkeley, and mm-hmm. I really think what that study is saying is, these are the things that they, sort of best practices. These mm-hmm. are the things that they've done to move past some of the challenges. And because I think in school nutrition, you know, depending upon the size of your district, many people served, um, sort of face the same kinds of challenges. 
So these districts, and looking at 10 different districts, mm-hmm. I thought made the study much stronger because it's saying, look, these best practices are going on in a variety of districts, and they're doing them kind of in a variety of ways, mm-hmm. um, but that has moved the dial forward. And so I think we can learn a lot from looking at best practices. I also liked that study in the sense that it said there's still areas of improvement. Mm-hmm. Um, kitchen equipment and kitchen facilities, definitely an issue. Uh, you know, that we really have to take a look at and, and help people in that area. And, of course, the hot item is time for lunch. Yes. You yes. serve a nice, wholesome meal with all the components. It takes time to sit down and eat that lunch. I, I'm really glad you brought that up. That's like my favorite topic, Katie. Um, and, I, and I know that time for lunch is not an area that your office has authority over, but I'm I'm glad you're, you know, pitching for it. And, and when we spoke earlier, you said you hoped this was something that maybe SNA could speak up about as well. Right. I, I really think that that is a place where the School Nutrition Association could have a strong voice. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, with the members being all over the country and people in the field, the people that are in the field see what, what happens. Right. When a child has only 20 minutes to get out of their classroom, wash their hands, use the restroom, go through a line, get food, sit down, and hopefully get out to recess uh, within a 20-minute period, that's pretty tough for people to do. And so... You know, I would hope. And then again, there's the schools and all that they have to get involved in and all that they have to accomplish in the day. So I think we need just to have some really good, robust discussion. Mm -hmm. I don't think we need to really start looking at legislating things right now in the sense of let's sit down and have some robust discussion with school leaders uh, because they know their buildings better than anybody. Yeah. Yeah. And so how can we make that happen? Right. So, Katie, let, let's take a pause for station break. And, and when we come back, I want to ask you about the diversity of opinion among school food, uh, food service professionals about waivers and proposed adjustments to the nutrition standards in the upcoming reauthorization. Um, you're listening to Inside School Food, a conversation with FNS Deputy Undersecretary Dr. Katie Wilson. Stay with us. Oh, won't you save all your pumpkin pie? Oh, won't you save all your pumpkin pie? Oh, won't you save all your pumpkin pie? Just for me, girl. Please don't give none away. Let it get sweeter by the day. Oh, won't you save it, baby? Won't you save it? Oh, won't you save it all for me? You're listening to Pumpkin Pie by the California Honey Drops. We'll be right back. Today's program was brought to you by Nutrislice. Nutrislice wants to see you succeed. They help school nutrition programs who want to do a little more with their marketing communications. Nutrislice is all about helping people increase their nutrition IQ. Their products are designed to engage, educate, and inspire greater levels of personal wellness. Whether you're interested in communicating the virtues of your nutrition program, upping your game in the fight against childhood obesity, saving money, or becoming more innovative, Nutrislice has the tools for you. They can help you reduce food waste by getting kids excited about eating healthy foods. 
Is your program serving healthy foods but not getting the credit it deserves? Nutrislice can help you communicate all the great things you're doing to parents, students, school administrators, and the community. They can also help you gain critical customer insights to your business. They've worked with the most innovative school nutrition programs in the country, big and small, and their experience speaks for itself. Get in touch today to see what Nutrislice can do for you. That's Nutrislice.com. Welcome back. We are so pleased to have with us today Dr. Katie Wilson, Deputy Undersecretary of the USDA Food and Nutrition Service, to help us dig in on some big topics in the upcoming child nutrition reauthorization, whenever that occurs. As everyone listening probably knows, the vote scheduled for September 30th has been postponed. For how long, I can't say, but I will certainly get the word out on Inside School Food social media the minute we hear any news. Katie, um, in May 2014, um, you were one of 19 past uh, SNA presidents to sign a petition to the Senate and House members uh, of Committees on Agriculture Appropriations. Um, The petition called for staying the course on Healthy Hunger-Free Kids Act. Um, How did this effort come together? Well, I think that the past presidents of the School Nutrition Association, you know, we're, we're still very passionate. Many um, are still very active in the field of child nutrition in various capacities. And so we always felt that the role of the School Nutrition Association was about good nutrition and access for good nutrition to children. And we always, our mantra was always the fact that children couldn't vote. And so it was mm-hmm. up to us to stay the course. And when the School Nutrition Association um, had a different message, then there were a number of us, obviously 19 of us, that got together and said, we felt so strongly about this um, that we felt we needed to let Congress know that there are those of us that were still in the field and still actively involved in the field um, that we felt that this takes time and, and we can't go back now because we just got started. And, and we really, over the years, we really felt we were the ones that helped push this initiative forward. Um, I chaired the National Standards um, Nutrition Standards Task Force for SNA mm-hmm. that basically gave USDA the suggestions of pretty much what we have right now. So we felt so strongly that that was the role of the School Nutrition Association um, and that when their messaging changed, we thought Congress really needed to know. And it took a lot of thought. We spent a lot of time talking to each other. We spent a lot of time writing the letter. Um, it took a lot of thought for us to do that because it was very heartfelt, and we knew that it would uh, become, uh, you know, it, it would become part of the media press. That oh, it, and it definitely was. Um, it, it's a short document. I'm going to I'm going to read one little excerpt. It says, um, "We urge you to reject calls for waivers, maintain strong standards in all schools, and direct USDA to continue working with school leaders and state directors to find ways, including technical assistance, that will ensure all schools can meet Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act." standards. I mean, between the time that you did this petition, um, May 2014, as I said, um, we have seen waivers, uh, most notably on the whole grain rich standards and on healthy food fundraising. Um, I'd like to talk about the whole grain rich waivers. As I, as I mentioned at the top of the show, industry is now reporting success with the 100% whole grain rich standards. But some issues remain, for instance, with pasta. Do you want, you want to talk about that? 
Sure. I, I think, first of all, at the national conferences last summer, a number of us went on different missions to see what was out there. And we really think that, that corporations have changed their formulations. We really, I really saw some really wonderful products. I know one company in particular talked to me at length and said they even hired a sensory perception person just mm-hmm. to work through these kinds of issues. I think some of the things that I've seen even coming from the Institute and the training that we've done, um, the pasta issue, in many cases, what I've seen is that people don't know how to cook the whole grain pasta. Mm. It is completely different than the pasta we used to use in the past. Um, and so you have to do more batch cooking. You do have to learn the skill of cooking that pasta. Now, the other piece is, is and I was just at a, we'll talk about it in a minute, but I was just at a team up in the Mountain Plains. Mm-hmm. And a couple of those state agency folks that were present said, you know, this year we have less and less waivers because the products are out there. Again, it took time. We've been at this four, four and a half years, and the companies had to do some R&D, and they really have, and they've come up with some really great stuff. I know the whole grain grits in the South are working very well uh, in many cases, and the biscuits, the whole grain biscuits, are really working in the South in mm-hmm. many situations. So the other thing I think, Laura, people need to understand is you can still serve a white biscuit or your jasmine rice or those kinds of things periodically if you have another grain, a whole grain component there and you just add those things into your calorie count. So if, if you have a yeah. jasmine rice as a traditional food, you can still serve that. You just add it into your calorie count. You don't use it as your grain component. That's an interesting point, and I would, you know, I, I don't know what... Um SNA representatives would, would, would say to that. Um, certainly they are concerned that um, certain regional and cultural foodways need to be respected at school, um, especially when we're dealing with new American immigrants. Um, I think the example you're referring to with the jasmine rice was something that Jean Ronnie, the president of SNA, brought up on the, this show two weeks ago when she said that their um, Laotian and Karen students um, were really not accepting brown rice because and their tradition, it was something that was given to animals. Um, it's animal feed, so she she really needed she they they got a waiver to uh, serve jasmine white jasmine rice. Um, there's another excerpt here that had me curious um, in the petition. It said specific concerns regarding whole grains and sodium can be addressed as technical corrections. I mean, what, did, what did signers mean by that at the time? What, what, what's a technical correction and, you know, what ideally would be the process for making one? Well, technical corrections to the past presidents is, is training. Um, I think the past presidents have always been, there's not one person, every single person that signed that document always believed in training and technical training to school food service employees. Um, and so I think a lot of that is the technical assistance, it's training. Sometimes it needs to be more specific technical assistance where they actually get assistance right in their kitchens and not in a great big group setting. Mm-hmm. Others can do it in a group setting. Others we can go back to some of those other studies like Berkeley where the, where the best practices are going on. And so I think the past presidents also, one good thing about school nutrition is we always share ideas. It's open. Nobody hides anything. And so don't reinvent the wheel. Find out what other people are doing to get through those challenges and, and try to modify those to meet your district's needs. And I think that's what we really meant with those kinds of technical Right. And, and then the petition, the, the petition did not call for additional reimbursement. And I wondered why that was. 
We were really all about nutrition. That mm-hmm. was our core concern, and we didn't want to make it a very long letter. We didn't want to, we didn't want to get involved real uh, heavily politically. You know, when it comes for more reimbursement, that's always up to the Congress to decide whether that's available or not. Um, and so we were really concentrating on the issue of good nutrition in schools and that it's really high time, and we were delighted that the administration had decided to make that um, a priority and bring that awareness level up. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so, Katie, we're running out of time. So I, for my final question, um, as you know, we, we had um, Gene Ronnie, um, the newly elected president of SNA, um, and Vice President Lynn Harvey on Inside School Food two weeks ago. It was a great conversation. And they were very clear about their commitment to a, quote, robust, healthy, hunger-free kids act. Um, and, and they and other spokespersons for SNA insist that there's a great deal more agreement within the school nutrition community than the media and politicians would have us believe. I mean, would you agree with that? Um, I think I'm middle of the road there. Mm -hmm. I think you get into pockets where people are in agreement, and I think you get into some pockets, and I've been around the country, where people say to me, why is there such an issue? We want to move forward. We're embarrassed by what's being said, that we are able to do these things. Um, And as soon as you tell the public that you can't do it, there will be 100 people out there that say, well, then we can. We'll do it for you. We'll show you how to do this. So I think what's happened, and there's been a, a sort of a distent in, in amongst the ranks, and the fact is is that I know as a school nutrition director, I got tired of telling, people telling me I need to get fixed. I, I'm not broken. But to move the dial forward, any restaurant chain in this country or any business that has succeeded is because they don't stay back where they used to be. Mm-hmm. They continue to move the dial forward. And so... I think school nutrition is the same way, um, and and so I, you know, I'm going to be kind of the middle of the road there because I think you'll find a group of people that'll say, yes, we agree with what their messaging is at SNA, and that's the way we need to do it, and we're going to get legislative help to do it, or you're going to get just as many people that say, you know what, no, we don't agree, we are moving forward, and we wish we had some help, um, and I think there was an open letter signed by 86 school nutrition directors from all over the country that went out last year that said. That messaging isn't ours. We have a different message, and our message is we're doing well, and the kids in this country deserve this. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, this will take time. We want to bring all children back to participation um, because the program is for all children. We don't want it to become an economic-type program. It, we've always said school meals are for all children, irregardless of their economic level. So that's good marketing. That's positive thinking. That's positive um, work going forward. Um, and I think I, I just saw a statement from one of our allied organizations that are helping us with this, and they said knowledge plus attitudes minus barriers mm-hmm. equals behavior change. Who who was that? You know what? And I knew you were going to ask me that. <laughs> um, it was they were at Team Up. Okay. It must have been um, either the Alliance for Healthier Generation or the American Heart Association. Um, there was a number of, of allied organizations were there. United right. Fresh. So, um, but that was their statement on their PowerPoint. Right. I can get that to you. Okay. But. That'd be great. Um, and I should add that Team Up is is the USDA um, peer mentorship program, which um, you have been very busy developing um, in your previous job. And, and at some point, we'd like to say uh, a lot more about that on Inside School Food. Um, Katie, once again, thank you for joining us at this very busy time. This has been a great addition to our growing collection of conversations about 
critical issues we're wrestling with in this uh, child nutrition reauthorization. Uh, we have been speaking with the USDA Food and Nutrition Services, Dr. Katie Wilson. Links to the USDA fact sheet and the studies we discussed today can be found on today's show page on InsideSchoolFood.com. You can check out other recent episodes on CNR 2015 on network.org. It's a brand new website there. You might want to check it out. It's pretty great. Um, if you want to be an Inside School Food regular, and I think that's a good idea, you can subscribe um, via iTunes or Stitcher. And I highly recommend following Inside School Food on Facebook um, or Twitter, where we deliver news you can use on a near daily basis. Um, I'm Laura Stanley. Uh, next week, we kick off Farm to School Month with our first discussion about a food hub, um, this one in northeast Iowa. It's, it's doing great, innovative work in supplying the region's schools. Uh, today's break music was provided by the California Honey Drops. The theme song to my show is by Techstar, and our fabulous new sponsor is Nutrislice. Uh, next up, a short clip of another heritage show I really like, uh, The Farm Report with Erin Fairbanks. So prior to um, the founding of your farm, which is in Australia's Kimberley region, Chia was mostly founded in South America. Where, like, Did it geographically locate in specific types of climate, or does it do well in a variety of climates? Ever wonder where chia seeds are grown? John Foss explains on episode 236 of The Farm Report. It's a photosensitive crop that needs to be grown around 15 degrees north or south of the equator because the day length post-flowering of the seed is what affects the omega-3 content in the oil. So it can only be grown in quite a, a tight latitude globally, and that latitude is where our farms are in northern Australia, where I um, started the cheer industry and, and then brought in a number of other farmers that were at the time growing sugar and sugar cane and looking to change from a commodity crop and be part of a crop that was going to make a positive difference to health and wellness. So they were very eager to follow with me and join and grow cheer. Uh, and now around the world there's still some cheer growing in Mexico and parts of Central and South America and then Australia where we have our, our chia farms. To learn much, much more about how chia seeds grow, tune into the rest of the episode and find all episodes of The Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network and iTunes. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us with questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.